This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on this week? Well, what the hell is going on is there's been a report that the United States will take, it'll take us five years to replace the Javelin missiles that we've given to the Ukrainians. War in Ukraine is surfacing a major problem, which is that our defense industrial base has atrophied in the post-Cold War era since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And we are not capable of producing weapons, particularly advanced precision weapons, in a very timely manner and weapons that we will need for a conflict with China. And, you know, Seth Jones, who is our guest today from the Center for, for Strategic and International Studies, they did a, a bunch of war games with uh, over, a, over a U.S.-China war over Taiwan. And they found that we run out of some of our most advanced precision weapons in less than a week. And the time to replace some of those weapons will, will take years and years. And, you know, a lot of Americans are thinking, we're the United States of America. How on earth is it that we can't produce weapons that we need to protect this country and to deter war uh, in the Pacific or to help the Ukrainians against the Russians? It's just it's just absolutely gobsmacked by by our inability uh, to produce weapons. So I think that there are people listening to you who can draw the wrong conclusion. They will say to themselves, oh, my God, we don't have enough to beat the Chinese. We better stop using up that good stuff <laughs> and sending it to Ukraine. And we've we've heard this not just from people who are lefty nuts or righty wing nuts. Uh, we've heard this from some defense people as well. And that reflects a few problems. Number one, <laughs> we're not using up stuff for Ukraine that we would be using necessarily in a conflict with China. We're not giving them submarines. We're not giving them advanced aircraft. We're not using the kinds of things that we would need to use in a conflict in China. That's number one. Number two, if we had not given a damn thing to Ukraine, we still wouldn't have enough to go more than a week or two with the Chinese. And so, you know, everybody needs to wake up and recognize that far from being a drain on our precious, precious resources, Ukraine has been the wake-up call that we needed, thank God, in a timely enough fashion that we can right our national ship that we can start <laughs> building some actual national ships, that we can speed up our production process, that we can make enough ammunition, and that we can end the pretense that war is a thing of the past and that we will never again have a serious conflict with a serious great power. 
So just to underscore what you're saying, because it's really important, what are the kinds of capabilities we're giving the Ukrainians? We're giving them howitzers. We're giving them javelins. We're giving them something called HIMARS, which are high-mobility artillery rocket systems. Those are all important in Ukraine because it's a land war in Ukraine. We would need those weapons in Taiwan if the Chinese were able to successfully cross the Taiwan Strait and get to, to Taiwan. But our military strategy is to stop them from doing that. And to stop them from doing that, you need other weapons. You need F-35 Joint Strike Fighters, you need B-2 bombers, you need nuclear submarines, and you need long-range anti-ship missiles. Completely different capabilities. But the problem is the same industrial base is responsible for producing them all. <laughs> and so the fact that we are having such a difficulty that has been surfaced by, by the Ukraine war is is given us, a, it's like the canary in the coal mine to tell us we've got this huge, huge problem. And I would argue not only is Ukraine not hurting us in the sense that it's it's raised this problem, it's actually helping us because it's creating demand on our industrial base that didn't exist before the war. So when Congress gives money for Ukraine, that money doesn't go to Ukraine. It goes to the Pentagon. We are giving weapons from our existing stockpiles, and then the money Congress appropriates goes to the Pentagon to replenish those stockpiles. It goes to the it goes to defense contractors to produce weapons, uh, both for us and for the Ukrainians. So it's ginning up this defense industrial base. And also, I would add that our allies are now because they've been awakened to the problem. The NATO allies of Russian aggression, finally. They're starting to spend more on defense. And where are they buying things? They're buying things from us. Uh, the Polish and Lithuanian and and Baltic you know, militaries are getting rid of their Soviet era weapons, giving them the Ukrainians and seeing this as an opportunity to buy modern NATO interoperable Western weapons, which we are producing. So the war in Ukraine is helping from that perspective as well. So we've got this is a major problem that we face, but the war in Ukraine is helping us to address it and couldn't happen soon enough. The real problem is that there's been a disconnect between our rhetoric and our actions for at least the last decade, if not more. We have increasingly sounded the alarm. The the Obama administration kept saying, you know, we need to do less in the Middle East so we can do more in China. So they did less in the Middle East, but they didn't do more in China. Then the Trump administration came in, really some, you know, lots of lots of lunatics. And on these issues, some really, really top-notch people. Matt Pottinger, who we've had on the, the podcast and others, who again said, we need to absolutely change the way we do business. We need to stand up to the Chinese. We need to deter the Chinese. And we need to resource that effort. Did that happen? No, it didn't. Now we've got a Congress that is so spun up about the Chinese Communist Party threat that it stood up a special committee that's uh, chaired by our by our friend and, and recidivist guest, Mike Gallagher, and still, we are looking at a situation where the Pentagon, but not just the Pentagon, let's not just blame those guys. It's also the Congress and the White House have not stepped up to remedy the problems that we face. We haven't got enough ships. You know, we, we talked about the, the number of shells. I'm sorry, I know I'm ranting, but we talked about the number of, of shells that are, that are used when we had Yarrow Trofimov on. The U Ukraine uses about 
five to 6,000 artillery shells and rockets a day. That's a lot. And they probably could be more efficient, but just to give everybody a sense, right? We produce 180,000, 155 millimeter shells every year. In Europe, they produce about 300,000, 155 millimeter shells every year. That is three months consumption for Ukraine, right? Ukraine and Russia are fighting a small war. This is not this is not war in the Taiwan Strait. This is not the Pacific Theater. Just imagine to yourself if we continue our capacity to produce at that level, what will happen when we when we face up to the Chinese? No, we've got to get it going. We've got to spend money on this, and we've got to uh, develop these capabilities. And I'll tell you the other thing that 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 Ukraine is helping us with. It's it's helping us to test military capabilities in combat we've never used before. We're, for example, the Ukrainians, and this is where it was something that will actually help us in the Taiwan Strait. The Ukrainians have have sunk, I think, eighteen Russian ships uh, in the in the Black Sea, including the Moskva, which is the the you know the pride of the Black Sea fleet. They're using something called uncrewed surface vessels, which are basically you know we, everybody knows about unmanned drones. These are unmanned uh, ships that that are loaded with explosives and go and then and they're very hard to detect by radar because they go along the surface of the, the of the waterline. So your radar is looking at the sky. It's very hard to detect them on the waterline. And they've been taking out these uh, Russian ships. This is something that could be very uh, helpful to us in the in the Taiwan conflict. We've never used these in combat before. It's only because we're giving them the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians are using them with with our with the help of our military planners and intelligence that we're able to test these weapons out and test concepts that could actually help us uh, to defend Taiwan. But again, if we don't produce enough of them. <laughs> Then and produce them on scale, then we won't have them for a t- for a conflict with Taiwan. So we've got to get this defense industrial. You know, you keep hearing from from some of these you know isolations about the the threat of the military industrial complex. The threat is overstated. <laughs> the military industrial complex is is pretty is pretty feeble right now. And we got to that's exactly we got to right. get it. And the goal is not to fight a war with China. It's to deter a war with China and to show the Chinese that we have the capabilities so we don't have to fight. That's what we're not doing right now. So before we introduce our guest, just to give everybody a sense of the of the feebleness of our military industrial complex at this moment, right? U.S. Army acquisitions has asked for major increases in the paces of the production of certain um, certain critical items, stingers. They've wanted. They've asked for a six-fold increase. Javelins, a double. HIMARS that Mark just mentioned, double. Guess how long it's going to take for the United States to ramp up that fast? Most of it, certainly not before next year, and some of it not till 2028. Yeah, this is not exactly the military-industrial complex that that Dwight Eisenhower moaned about, you know, driving us towards increased conflict with other countries. This is the this is the military-industrial complex that will that will stand behind as we say, no, that's okay, China. You guys go ahead. We we can't get our stuff together in time. Can I just add to the rant here? Def- Department of Defense chart I'm just looking at here of defense spending as a percentage of GDP. Okay. So in just a few years ago, in about 2009, we were spending 4.5% of our GDP on defense, which is way below the wartime levels of, you know, roughly 10%. You know what it's going to be next year, 2024? 2.7% of GDP. 
That's the lowest it's been since the 1950s. I mean, well, we're really struggling. We're really struggling to keep up with France. But, you know, I mean, we we're literally, you know, we we're just a few years ago. We were beating up on the Europeans, pointing out how we spent four or four and a half percent of our GDP on defense. And they can't even bring themselves to the two point two percent of GDP threshold that NATO set as the floor for, for defense spending. A lot of them are coming up to that now. We're we're trying to get down to that. <laughs> we're heading down into the twos right now. And, you yeah. know, and then you've got a bunch of Republicans on Capitol Hill who are saying, you know what, as part of a budget deal, we should put defense cuts on the table. Our friends at the Heritage Foundation saying defense cuts should be on the table. Defense cuts? <laughs> We're at 2.7% of GDP. Mark is going to come that, and find what you. What the hell is Mark going Deason on? Is gonna, <laughs> Mark Thiessen is going to personally come and find you <laughs> and edumacate you, damn it. I am going to edumacate right. you, damn it. <laughs> As Mark said, our guest this week uh, is is Seth Jones. Uh, he's the senior vice president and the Harold Brown chair and, and the director of the International Security Program and the director of the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. God, I hope they're paying him enough. He used to be... <laughs> He used to be at, at uh, used to be the director of international security and defense policy at the Rand Corporation. He was the representative for the commander in the U.S. Special Operations Command at the Department of Defense, and a plans officer and advisor to the commanding general to U.S. Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan. He is the perfect person to talk about all of this and talk. He does. Brace yourself because it's going to make you mad. Here's our interview. Well, Seth, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you. So you recently ran some war games modeling a Chinese amphibious assault of Taiwan in 2026. And the good news is, is that most of the time Taiwan survived. But the bad news is, is that we ran out of long range anti-ship missiles and a lot of weapons in less than a week of combat. What's going on? Well, I think the, uh, the the challenge is right now that the U.S. has certainly talked an important game about China as being the primary threat, what the Department of Defense calls the pacing threat. And so it is, front, uh, it is at the front of the national defense strategy, uh, the most important uh, state of competition right now. The challenge, as we see with the industrial base, is uh, it is an industrial base that is largely um, prepared for uh, a peacetime environment, or at least an environment that um, is better suited to the counterterrorism operations that we were involved in um, in running, including I was involved in running when I was in the government for the last 20 years. And so the war games, they were led by Mark Kansian. Uh, there was a, an effort uh, between CSIS, uh, MIT, and the uh, US uh, Naval War College in, um, in Rhode Island we ran 24 different iterations of a war game, and what the the one of the interesting things that that uh, that resulted in the war game were that we ran out of some of those key precision guided munitions like El Rasms in roughly a week uh, in virtually all of the iterations. What it means is we just don't have sufficient numbers of key munitions prepositioned in important locations. Uh, and if you don't have those numbers right now, it raises a lot of questions, and they're not very good ones, or at least very good answers, about how much we can actually deter uh, a Chinese invasion if we don't have what we need to fight a war. 
One of the things that, that has been interesting, Seth, is that the wake-up call that we've gotten on this is, is Ukraine, right? I mean, this is the canary in the coal mine for us, which is always, for me, you know, begs the question of why it is that some people are saying, no, no, we can't do Ukraine because we have to focus on China. No, 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 we don't even have enough to do Ukraine, let, let alone focus on China. This is an, a wake-up call, thank God for us in advance. We're not finding this out, you know, after a potential invasion of Taiwan. How did we get here, though? Well, I think we got here for a couple of reasons. One is, is we have spent the U.S. has spent a lot of its time over the last 20 years, certainly after 9-11, um, not focused on conventional warfare or even conventional deterrence. That obviously started to change with the 2018 National Defense Strategy and then continued with the current administration's National Defense Strategy, where at least they talked about this issue. But the reality has been that it is one thing to talk about balancing China, competing with China, and then preparing for war or deterrence against China, it's a very different issue to get one's defense industrial base in a position where, uh, where it can fight a sustained conflict. So there are multiple challenges. One is the war in Ukraine was a very clear uh, reminder. Uh, you know, uh, we didn't necessarily need this reminder, but apparently uh, for most policymakers, they did need this reminder that a conventional war is a possibility. We see that with the Russian invasion, uh, that a conventional war may be protracted and that what a protracted conventional war looks like is you run through large amounts of munitions that equipment, including weapon systems, break down. You need spare parts, stuff gets destroyed. So this is very different from dropping some JDAMs in Iraq or Afghanistan this is about the need for a long-range strike, integrated air defense, uh, long-range fires. So this is where we've seen the importance, not just of HIMARS and the, and the weapon systems, but all the munitions that go into them. And it's, it's even more the case in the Indo-Pacific where the Chinese do have a lot of power projection capabilities that will push U.S. forces far uh, outside of that anti-access air denial bubble and so, you know, there's a lot of reliance in that kind of context, in that kind of war setting on longer range uh, missiles that'll, that would strike Chinese targets, um, you know, amphibious ships, airplanes, uh, uh, bringing in uh, uh, PLA soldiers into Taiwan as part of an invasion. And we're just, we just hadn't, we talked a big game, but we had not fully prepared. And I, I think in the Indo-Pacific, what I think really started, at least for me, and my discussions with senior Department of Defense officials started to change is that when the timeline starts shrinking in China and a range of U.S. officials start arguing that it's not inconceivable that a war happens much sooner uh, than any of us anticipated from a few years ago that, you know, 2025, 2026, 2027, 2024, that if those are your timelines and we don't have the munitions uh, in, in place right now, we have a big problem. So I, I think that the war in Ukraine was a big reminder of what a protracted conventional war, and that's the arena we're in right now, what it looks like and what's required. I mean, it really is an axiom that's sort of overused that the generals always prepare to fight the last war. But I guess the defense industrial complex also 
prepares to fight the last war, you know, that we've been focused on counterinsurgency for so long. Is it fair to say Ukraine is really reorienting our military and our military industrial complex back to conventional great power conflict in a way doing us, you know, it's almost, I, I hate to call a war a godsend, but in a way it's a, it is a godsend because it gives us time to fix this before a conflict with China, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's the combination of the war in in Ukraine, which we're not even fighting, frankly. So, I mean, in one sense, it's it's also a boost that they're not U.S. forces there, uh, that we are, we're running, we've run short on a couple of kinds of munitions, Javelin anti-armor systems, Stinger anti-aircraft, uh, some 155 millimeter, both howitzers and artillery rounds, but U.S. forces aren't on the ground fighting it. It's that combination plus shrinking timelines in uh, China have put us in the position we're in. And, you know, it's not just that the uh, defense companies, uh, I think in general, it's the entire um, Department of Defense acquisition system, and it's the State Department's foreign military sales and ITAR, the technology sharing, that is, it, they're all on a peacetime footing. And what does that mean in practice? It, it, it means that our services have not generally bought munitions for a protracted war. So the, the O plans are war plans that our combatant commands put together and that are uh, run through the joint staff. Those O plans are often short duration, not protracted ones. So I, I think the problem is much deeper even than, than just defense companies. It's how the Department of Defense has tried to connect its O plans, uh, its operational plans to, uh, to the acquisition system. And then just the challenges in uh, providing some of our allies and partners some of these critical weapon systems is that we're really slow. So uh, I think there are a range of, of challenges that have all come to light in the last couple of months with the war in Ukraine. There are so many things I want to ask you about, and, and I, I kept going back and forth as you were talking about this. Let me quickly ask you about this procurement problem. Uh, there was a, a, a report that I read that said the Chinese military acquires weapons five to six times faster than the United States. I guess that uh, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition said that. Um, then they are also spending about a dollar for the same bang that we spend $20 for. So we've clearly got a series of problems. Then there's the whole um, you know, just-in-time nature of, uh, of our procurement process where, you know, I guess my understanding is it looks something like Amazon. You know, you turn around and you're like, hey, today I definitely need to buy some dog food. And I go on Amazon and buy some dog food. I don't think about what dog food I might need next year or the year after. I am always, by the way, running out of dog food. But <laughs> but why is this only now coming to light? And I'm, am I misunderstanding, you know, some of the elements of it? No, you're not. The, the reality in a relatively peacetime environment is that um, things like munitions, again, critical for both deterrence and warfighting in the Pacific. So some of your long-range precision weapon systems like JASMs and LRASMs, which you absolutely need for both deterrence and warfighting, uh, that they are what the Department of Defense called bill payers. So what generally happens is the services may say they're going to buy a certain number of them in a given fiscal year. And what happens with a lot of munitions by the end of the fiscal year is they decide, well, we're not going to fight a war this year. We may not fight one next year. 
uh, we are going to instead take that money and push it to programs X, Y, or Z. So munitions have become a bill payer. And if you're a defense company, if that's kind of the state of munitions, that every year the services end up yanking parts of the funding, these are single-year contracts for many of them, not multi-year. There's no incentive to uh, build the numbers that really go along with some of the uh, operational plans or O plans. And then if you look at the timeline it takes uh, to build these, uh, some of these missile systems, you can't do just in time for um, Javelin, which is about almost 30 months of production. That's just to get the first Javelins produced. Uh, Tomahawk Block 5s are about 25 months of lead time uh, from beginning to end. Just for the initial deliveries of those Tomahawks, Jasms and Elrasms are both just under 25 months to produce. Same thing with Pac-2, Pac-3 missiles. Uh, you know, just under two years for those. So you, you can't do just in time because you're not going to get the munitions you need, especially these precision-guided munitions in a just-in-time environment. You have to plan ahead. And if you want to build more and you don't have the factories in place, as we talk both to uh, staff on the Hill, in the Department of Defense, and with the critical uh, defense companies themselves, you want to build more of them. And you're talking about build in increasing the size of an assembly plant for munitions uh, you're at it you're adding additional time because you need additional insurance it's a larger uh, building uh, you need a certain distance from local population so you may actually have to buy more real estate um, so there are all these things that go into uh, expanding our military production that can't happen in a just-in-time environment and i think that is the realization as we've talked to senior Department of Defense officials, including on the acquisition side, they, they are now acutely aware of the problem. The issue is this is going to take some time to fix, as, as I just noted. In addition to this, Seth, I, I was reading in the journal that we, even as recently as the 1990s, the U.S. government relied on 51 primary contractors. That number now is five. Is that right? The, you know, I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. I mean, the, the reality is, at least in my view, the, the uh, building of complex weapon systems has actually a fairly large number of companies. Sure, there are some big ones like uh, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and uh, General Dynamics and Northrop Grumman. But at the end of the day, there's a whole series of companies involved in building engines for them, in building... Uh, different components, sensors that go into those uh, weapon systems. So there, there are a smaller number of big companies, but there are a lot that go into the uh, production of any of, especially the more complicated ones as you get into Virginia, Columbia class submarines, uh, F-35. You're talking about a large number of companies that are involved in building components. So I, I think the situation is a little bit more complex. However, I would add a couple of just of issues, even despite that, there are still single sources for some key components. Take the Javelin. Uh, it relies on, on a rocket motor. Uh, the Aerojet's Rocketdyne, uh, it's an advanced uh, solid propellant rocket motor. It's got no second source at the moment. There is one company that builds a turbofan engine for most cruise missiles, it's Williams International. And they produce the uh, turbofan engines for the JASM, the JASM extended range, and the LRASM. Uh, 
And so in those instances, we do see that we, we've, we've got real risk in the system. One main company, Paxi EMC, that produces the energetics for a lot of missiles. That, in my view, is actually the bigger concern is uh, there's not a lot of room in some of these cases and not a lot of competition. And if, if, if you really need to ramp up some of this uh, production and you only have one company that, that can do that, you're, you're, you're in a very risky uh, situation. I was going to ask you something else, but you mentioned energetics. We had Congressman Mike Gallagher on the podcast recently, who is, of course, the chairman of the, the Special Select Committee on China on the Chinese Communist Party. And he pointed out that the primary source of energetics is China, that we are actually dependent on China for energetics. Is, is, is that true? And, and how can we possibly be dependent on our adversary for something that's so critical to our national security? Yeah, I think the, the problem is actually even bigger, in my view. I mean, uh, Congressman Gallagher is exactly right. I just sat down also with uh, Congressman Waltz and Jason Crow to talk through a number of these issues, including uh, China uh, and it's the, the U.S. industrial base. And, it, you know, if we broaden it from energetics. And could you explain what gen energetics are for our audience? Energetics is a broad category of material that's found in rocket and missile motors. It's found in ammunition, warheads, and, infuse, and fusing. And what energetics does is it actually makes the, uh, the projectiles go. So it provides the uh, power to then shoot off the rocket or the ammunition. Without the energetics, you don't have launch. And we're dependent on China. For energetics, we're dependent in part on China, but again, it's bigger than that. If you look at rare earth metals, uh, the China has a has a near monopoly on rare earth metals. China dominates the advanced battery supply chain across the, the globe. That includes things like lithium hydroxide cells, electrolyte, lithium carbonate, anodes, cathodes. If you look at broader cast products. China produces more cast products than the next nine countries combined, including five times more than the U.S. And cast products, large cast and forge products, are utilized in defense systems, machine tools, manufacturing systems, in, uh, which are critical for Department of Defense weapon systems. So you take a step back. Uh, there's a lot of vulnerability in the broader industrial base in some areas uh, with which which China has either a near monopoly on rare earth metals, energetics, lithium hydroxide, anodes, cathodes, it, it's a situation where the U.S. has to figure out a better way of either producing them itself uh, or or finding other partners, trusted partners and allies uh, that um, have access to them. It seems that in a way the war in Ukraine not only has provided a service in the sense that it's wakened us to this uh, problem, but it's also creating demand, isn't it, for the, for the defense industry that wouldn't have been there? To sort of, if, you, if you want to gin up an industry, you have to create demand. And so we're having, you know, most people don't realize that the money we're spending on Ukraine doesn't go to Ukraine. It goes to America. It goes to U.S. to the Pentagon to replace weapons we're giving out of our stockpile to the Ukrainians. It goes to defense contractors to produce things for the Ukrainians. And also, the, our allies in Europe are giving, uh, you know, are basically donating their old Soviet-era weapons to Ukraine, and they're ordering new American 
weapons as well. So isn't isn't this conflict in a way, just like World War II, you know, ginned up a huge industrial base, it's helping us to get this this old cranky machine going again. The war in Ukraine has definitely energized the industrial base. I think what's less clear is how long that energy stays uh, with us. I mean, I think it's certainly clear, and I think people do have to realize when we're talking about giving assistance to Ukraine, and we're, we're talking about producing um, javelins, Stinger anti-aircraft systems, any of the 155 millimeter howitzers or artillery rounds, Excalibur, precision guided, um, any of the armored personnel vehicles or tanks or harpoon coastal defense systems. These are produced by American or allied part, partner countries. They're produced by General Dynamics, by Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, uh, by um, uh, Boeing in some cases with Harpoon. And, and they're being built in most cases in the United States. These are certainly helpful for jobs for you know, Lima, Lima, Ohio uh, produces some of the key tanks. A lot of the, the uh, Rock, uh, Rock Island Arsenal has produced 105 uh, millimeter howitzers. Uh, a lot of the Boeing uh, is uh, produced on the west coast of the United States. These, these are going to American jobs. But I want to come back to the timing. If the war in Ukraine were to slow down, we were to get some kind of a stalemate and there was, if not a negotiated settlement, which I think is unlikely, but if, if you're to get uh, a pause in the, in the war, it would probably still raise questions among some policymakers about whether we need to continue uh, funding the industrial base to the degree that we're funding right now. We've got a hot war and it is a reminder of the necessity but will we still have the same sense of urgency if we don't have a hot war in the Indo-Pacific, in, in Taiwan, but we still have significant competition? The Chinese may be preparing for a war at some point. They're building a bigger uh, blue water Navy. They're building hypersonics, building stealth capabilities. Does the American population and the government have the same sense of urgency if we don't have a war going on, but we're in a in an environment that we're um, trying to deter them from doing it. And that to me is, I'm not so clear at this point. I think you're absolutely right about that. We're watching attrition in the support that the American people are giving to uh, a war that is being fought against a shared enemy by other foreign soldiers. So, and, and if you can't support that, it's going to be hard to, to maintain enthusiasm. I think you're exactly right. I think the, the, the question for me is this, this disconnect. You know, we have, since the Obama administration, we have been talking about the pivot, right? We've been talking about how we spent too much time worrying about Afghanistan, too much time worrying about Iraq, Okay, fine. We're out of Afghanistan. We're barely in Iraq. We're barely in Syria. And yet there has not been any serious effort to resource what would be necessary, as you say, not even just to not to fight a war, but to deter conflict with a country that is ramping up at a speed that I think we haven't seen maybe, maybe not, maybe never, certainly not since the Rhineland. But you know, what What's going on? Since the 1930s. What is this disconnect? <laughs> well, I think it's the, the, the disconnect is, uh, I, I think, a failure to appreciate that competition 
with a country like China is more than just about saying we're going to compete uh, and about uh, conducting current operations. Uh, so we do talk about uh, freedom of navigation activity in the Taiwan Straits, uh, training uh, Taiwan, providing some weapon systems to, to Taiwan. But it's a reminder that, that we, if, if we're serious about deterrence and about war fighting, if deterrence fails, then you need an industrial base, defense industrial base, that can fight a protracted war. And it really took probably late 1930s for the U.S. to get, to get its hands on this recognition that if the U.S. was going to be serious uh, as the Germans pre were preparing to invade Poland, uh, that the U.S. needed, and, and the U.S. at that point hadn't declared war on anyone, it was not involved, but the, there was a recognition that the defense industrial base really needed to uh, significantly evolve. And the challenge, frankly, that's different about that pre-World War II period uh, to today is, um, is you could take some of the manufacturing, including um, automobile plants, and turn them into, uh, into uh, factories that produced uh, aircraft. The challenge with some of the sophisticated weapon systems we see today with very significant very complicated electronics, stealth technology for uh, some of our advanced aircraft like F-35s is um, it, it's going to take a lot more to shift uh, our industrial base in a very uh, different technological environment. So it, this really gets back to to starting to internalize what it, what it really is is required to deter and war fight. And, and again, the, the Russians went into the war in Ukraine hoping it would be short, it's been a year, and the industrial base of both sides have been heavily taxed. Um, and I think that's a, that's a real good uh, evidence for us today of what we, where we need to move in the Pacific. Talk a little bit about that because one of the mistakes we made in Ukraine was not taking Putin seriously and not arming Ukraine before the war began and thinking it was going to be a guerrilla war and so giving them sort of weapons for defense as opposed to preparing them for major combat. Taiwan, unlike Ukraine, doesn't have a long porous border. It's an island. And so, it, you know, if, if we make the mistake of not arming the Taiwanese well in advance and prepositioning these capabilities, we might not get a chance once the war began. Like, you know, we, we don't have a land route from Poland to, to Ukraine that equivalent in, in Taiwan. How important is it to get this done quickly and, and get these weapons going into the theater, both to deter war, but also to be ready if war does happen? I think there are two critical components. Uh, one is to get Taiwan what it needs to uh, deny uh, China an invasion, and if frankly, if denial uh, fails, uh, then to punish the uh, the Chinese. So I think we should be thinking about this both in terms of of uh, deterrence by denial, but also uh, deterrence by punishment. What does that translate into? That translates into providing uh, the Taiwanese uh, from weapons a weapon systems perspective with with uh, uh, I think uh, a key artillery uh, harpoon. Uh, missiles uh, with gimblers, 
uh, and with a range of other weapon systems that they would need to fight a uh, air, sea, and land battle with Taiwan, uh, or sorry, with China. And there's a second issue too, which is the, the U.S. then also needs uh, the right kind of munitions and capabilities, including platforms, uh, to deter and fight as well. So uh, that is enough LRASMs, uh, JASMs, um, uh, uh, and, and, and other longer range weapon systems, not just the, enough stockpiles, but prepositioned in the right locations in Kadena in Japan or in Australia. It's not an or, it's an and. So we need to uh, preposition in multiple places. And then, you know, as we saw with our war games, uh, what, what kinds of platforms are critical are also submarines. So uh, Virginia class submarines, for example, uh, become critical. So I think we need to continue to produce in our shipyards of those submarines because they're really difficult to target and our strategic bombers. So B-21, I think, which has a long-range strike capability, uh, has a really important role to play in deterrence and warfighting. So there's going to be some very key weapons systems and munition that the U.S. is going to need, in addition to arming uh, Taiwan and then providing the requisite training, intelligence, as the U.S. did with, with, um, uh, with with Ukraine and other kinds of support that are going to be important as well, including, um, you know, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, all that stuff's important for Taiwan. One of the things that worries me, and we really haven't talked a lot about defense budget questions overall, but do we have the budget to do this? I'm in the middle of sort of arguments between people listening to the administration last week saying, no, 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 you know, we're, we have an increase in our defense budget request well above inflation and everybody else saying, what the hell are you talking about? It doesn't look to me like even though there, there's a recognition that we have this challenge, that we need to get moving, that we need to accelerate, that we need to change and adapt, that the defense budget actually recognizes and pays for any of that. Am I wrong? Well, I haven't done uh, a full-up assessment of what the defense budget should be uh, in the environment that we now live in. So um, it's, I think it's a very good question, but what I will say are at least two issues. One of them is I think the defense budgets is going to have to be pretty big uh, because we're talking about state-based competition uh, we have a Russia that has invaded uh, a neighbor, Ukraine, and then we have China that is building significant capabilities. And as we've already seen, is building power projection. Uh, we've seen Chinese interest in the Solomon Islands. Uh, they continue to build uh, in Djibouti. They've got a port access on the west coast of Africa now. We've seen Chinese interest in port access in the United Arab Emirates. So this this all suggests uh, not just a, a much bigger Chinese military, but one that is projecting power globally. And then when you add on to that, all the other things China's been doing um, globally as well in, in terms of uh, its Belt Road Initiative and its, um, its, uh, uh, some of its other global activity, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's trying to be a global power. And so that means in order to counter that, the U.S. Uh, defense budget, because much of this is military competition, it's not all, it's going to have to be significant. Now, um, I would say, regardless of whether you're talking about a big increase or even a, f uh, a rough flatlining with the defense budget, 
I think at the very least, there has to be a reprioritization of how the department is spending its money. We cannot be, in, in my view, in a position where we do not have sufficient weapon systems and munitions to fight a, uh, uh, a war in China. Uh, at, currently, we're out in a week or so of some key munitions. We cannot be in that position. So at the very least, you're going to have to make some tough calls. Uh, some programs are going to have to be shelled for the time being, and you're going to have to focus on getting some of your key munitions up, stockpiled, and put in the right places. And I think you're going to have to really prioritize your B-21, uh, some of your key submarines and a few other assets that are going to be important in this kind of a competition. So at the very least, I, I don't know quite what the defense budget looks like in the end. I haven't run the numbers, but it's got to be pretty big. Yeah, I think we're going to be down to 2.7% of GDP uh, next year, which is, a, is, which is a historic low if that comes to pass. But let me ask you a question about the Russians. So, you know, we've destroyed, I think, half of the Russian operational tanks. We've destroyed thousands, of, I mean, through the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have using U.S. weapons. Um, the thousands of, of their munitions and their capabilities. If our defense industrial base is struggling, how bad is the Russian problem? And, are they, and, and could this war in Ukraine be so decimating the Russian threat to Europe that when it's done, they won't really, it'll take them decades to recover from it. And that wouldn't that allow us to finally do that pivot that Danny was talking about to Asia and sort of take a little more risk in Europe so that we can lean forward uh, against the risk in China? Well, a couple of things. Uh, I mean, it's a very good question. It's an important one. I think for the near future, at the very least, the Russian army is in uh, serious trouble right now. It can't fight combined arms. The defense industrial base to produce uh, weapons systems, particularly munitions, is significantly strained right now. I would say, though, that the Russians still do have reasonable uh, maritime capability, including submarines and anti-submarine warfare. The Russians have, uh, have notable uh, uh, nuclear strategic capabilities. And the Russian Air Force actually isn't bad. The, the problem they've had is actually not having air dominance in Ukraine and have basically having Russian pilots uh, fearful of flying over uh, Ukraine with S-300s that uh, could take them down or, or stingers as well. But the Russian Air Force isn't bad. Um, so I would say that the Russians in the near term uh, potentially uh, uh, present a nuclear threat, although uh, the U.S. also has a strong nuclear deterrent. Uh, the Russians do have some standoff capabilities. I think the worry for me is five to ten years there are some scenarios where if the Russians were to get significant assistance from the Chinese, uh, that they could uh, uh, be back sooner than uh, many would expect. I think it's hard to know today whether Russia in five to 10 years that has a significant injection of Chinese money and even Chinese weapon systems, uh, that, uh, that, that Russia in that scenario, I think, could be back sooner but what I think it does mean is uh, with Finland now uh, a member of NATO, Sweden hopefully coming soon, the, the Europeans buying some fifth generation aircraft like F-35s, uh, the, the Finns actually have a pretty strong maritime capability uh, that, uh, that uh, the, Europe is in a pretty good place right now for deterrence. The U.S. 
could take a few steps, particularly on the land domain. There's been discussion about moving an armored uh, BCT into Poland, for example, on a permanent basis uh, rather than a rotational one. So there are some posture steps that the U.S. could take in Europe. But I think the current situation with Russian ground forces does allow a uh, possibility for the U.S. to push a lot of its air and naval assets into the Pacific and to actually make that rebalance, the, the one that it's been talking about. Exit question for me. You've run these war games. You've come up with these conclusions. You've you know made absolutely clear what the link-up needs to be between operational plans and procurement. We know what we need to do. Do you think we can do it? I think there's no question that the U.S. can do it. It has the ability to do it. I think uh, there are clearly some senior individuals in the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, Bill LaPlante, for example, Under Secretary of Defense LaPlante, uh, is very well in tune with not just the challenge itself, but you know, multi-year contract fixes uh, to get some of those munitions numbers up. The problem is the Defense Department bureaucracy is so big, and you know the services have a stake in this as well. This is not just the Office of the Secretary of Defense or, or the Deputy Secretary of Defense making decisions. You've got to have the services and everybody else making changes. I, I, I worry that the U.S. isn't going to be able to do this quickly, but it can do it. Um, it can do it if it sets its mind to it. We saw it in the late 1930s that the U.S. can do it. Um, whether we will do it, we'll have to see. Well, Seth, thank you so much for giving us your wisdom and, and your insights into all of this. I hope you're right. Well, I hope you're right, and I hope they're listening to you. I really do. Well, uh, we have had a lot of discussions with uh, senior Department of Defense officials and both Republicans and Democrats on the Hill. And you know, there is a lot of a lot more unanimity now about the really poor state of the defense industrial base. Uh, particularly for China, whether that leads to change, I, I, my my general suggestion is all of us collectively have to have to hold the administration's feet to the fire on this issue because uh, the U.S. will be in a very bad position vis-a-vis China if it does not have a defense industrial base that can fight or deter a protracted war, and and that means we. We can have a lot of national defense strategies that say we're prioritizing China, but if we don't have a defense industrial base that actually shows that, then then, then these are just words. These are hollow words. Oh, well, that was depressing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Seth. Take care, Seth. Thank you so much. I'm great. One of the things that this conversation reminds me is that is that the American people don't support something that no one bothers to explain to them. You know, you say, I just want more money for defense. But you don't say, because we would lose a war with China right now. You say, I want to give more money to give you to, to support Ukraine. But you don't say, I want to support Ukraine because they're fighting fights so we don't have to. They're learning lessons so we don't have to. You don't say those things when you're the commander in chief, you don't say those things when you're the speaker of the house, then the American people don't know. And what they don't know 
they won't support. That's what makes me so angry about a lot of the so-called debate that's going on right now in Washington. Well, you know, I'll give you I'll I'll try and take a more optimistic tone on it, Danny, which is despite the fact that no one is explaining it to them, they're getting it right. <laughs> you know, there was a there was a Harvard Caps poll, uh, Harris poll that just came out. 67% of Americans say we should support Ukraine until either Russia withdraws its forces or is decisively defeated on the battlefield. And that includes 60% of Republicans. Um, that is in a, in a situation where no one is explaining to them the stakes. Uh, they just instinctively know it. Uh, now, so that support is softening. Uh, a little, especially among conservatives, where, you know, there's an increasing number of people who they are growing minority who say that we shouldn't be spending so much because they're hearing all these arguments from the other side about how we're spending too much, how it's hurting our preparedness and all the rest of it. Uh, there are answers to all those things. Uh, but I'm just I'm the American. My old boss, Don Rumsfeld, used to say the American people have a pretty good inner gyroscope. Um, and they do. And imagine what the support would be like if someone actually stepped up and explained the stakes that are involved, the stakes in Ukraine between victory and defeat and this, and what it means for preventing a war with China. Because, you know, in Ukraine, all we're doing is spending money while somebody else fights. And we're defending a country that is actually an internationally recognized sovereign state. In Taiwan, it would require American troops to defend a territory that is at least not legally a sovereign state. And if we're not willing to do what's necessary to defend Ukraine, the Chinese are going to look and say they're not going to defend Taiwan and they're going to and they're more likely to miscalculate and start a war that's going to cost American lives because our troops are going to have to go and fight it. Well, that's exactly right. You can either stand up the necessary strength to deter your enemies, or you can wait until they come find you and spend a couple years ramping up. We had to do that during World War II. We weren't able to turn the tide of war until the end of 1942, the beginning of 1943. Think of the number of lives that were lost. 60 million people died. Right. Perhaps perhaps that could be a lesson And the isolationist, by the way the America first isolationists in the 1930s, they were trying to stop another world war. They were from getting into another world war because 20 million people died in World War One. Well, you know what happened? We ended up in World War Two and 60 million people died. How many people do you think are going to die in a global war sparked over Taiwan between the United States and China? Uh, let's well, stop it. it, before, but, but, let's but, hang, it. hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. The one thing we don't want people to say is, and that's why we shouldn't commit to defend Taiwan, because don't ever forget if they come for those countries, whether it's Ukraine or it's Taiwan, they won't stop there. They always, always end up coming for us next. And if we let them get that far, we raise the risk that not just 20, not just 40, not just 60, but millions more die because war today does not look like war 80 years ago. So lesson, perhaps we could learn our lessons this time Amen. around. Amen. They hope everybody had a wonderful holiday week and we look forward to seeing Take care. you soon. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.